The text for this afternoon is what God's Word teaches us about the Ninth Commandment, as summarized and confessed in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 43. Not 49, as is written there, but Lord's Day 43. You can find this beginning on page 557 of Book of Praise. And let's read the question and answer there. Lord's Day 43. What is required in the Ninth Commandment? I must not give false testimony against anyone, twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor condemn or join in condemning anyone rashly and unheard. Rather, I must avoid all lying and deceit as the devil's own works under penalty of God's heavy wrath. In court and everywhere else, I must love the truth speak and confess it honestly, and do what I can to defend and promote my neighbor's honor and reputation. Beloved in Christ our Lord, we live in a world full of lies. Fake news continues to be a thing. But even real news reports deceive us by broadcasting only what they want us to see from the angle they want us to see it. Of course, everyone presents their own perspective, and every perspective needs to be evaluated. But often, there is deliberate manipulation, deliberate deception. This past week, I came across a series of pictures of people out in public recently that presented different perspectives, one with a telephoto lens and the other without. One presented a picture of crowds of people that looked like they were ignoring social distancing. The other showed that they were actually standing six feet apart. Depending on what message they want to convey, the media will choose their pictures, their facts, whatever fits their particular agenda. But it's not just out there. Isn't one of the dangers of our social media world the danger of the lie as well? Pictures are staged, set up, photoshopped, airbrushed, until it's hard to connect the digital to the reality. In fact, to make sure everyone knows it's true, you have to actually include hashtag no filter. And by controlling what pictures people see, we create an image of ourselves that's often much different from reality. The fall of the world began with a lie. Satan asked Eve, did God really say? And there it went. So to protect his people from a world full of lies, God included the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. I've been talking about lying more generally, but the commandment actually speaks of a specific scenario, false witness. That takes us to the world of the ancient law court. Right away, we'll have to shed our modern images of what justice looked like. Forget law and order, or CSI, or NCIS. There were no police to investigate. There were no courtrooms like we have them today. There were no juries as we know them. Instead, justice was a community affair. 
it took place at the gates of the city and involved the elders of the town. Justice happened when someone in the community brought an accusation against another member of the community. That accusation was brought before the elders at the city gate. One of the crucial elements of these court cases was the witnesses. God laid down laws that stated there must always be two or three witnesses for a charge to be sustained. These witnesses would not just attest to the truth of the charge, but also to the character of the accused or the victim. The elders would make their decision based on this evidence from the witnesses. There was no forensic team. There were no investigations. The witnesses were crucial. So, bearing false witness was a serious offense. The safety and security of the community depended on people speaking the truth, especially because it was often a matter of life and death, since any number of offenses resulted in capital punishment. You may recall the story of Naboth. Do you kids remember that story? When the wicked Ahab was king and Jezebel was queen? Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard really badly. And so Jezebel told the leaders of Naboth's town to have two false witnesses, two liars, sit beside Naboth at a party and then accuse him of cursing God and the king. That's what happened. And Naboth was taken away and stoned to death. Bearing false witness could be a matter of life and death. That's why God made the witnesses in a capital trial take up the first stones if the accused was declared guilty. They had to be willing not just to witness, but even to participate in killing the accused. And those who were exposed as false witnesses were to receive exactly the punishment that the falsely accused person would have received. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, Deuteronomy 19, verse 21. That's how seriously God took sin against the ninth commandment. But we don't have much to do with the courts anymore, and our system of justice doesn't rely as fully today as it did in the past on truthful witnesses. Forensic evidence has made establishing the truth at least somewhat more reliable. What's more, we are rarely dealing with life and death anymore. But there are other, less permanent ways to kill someone through false witness. The Catechism mentions twisting people's words, gossiping, slandering, condemning or joining in condemning someone rashly and unheard. Gossip, slander, do you kids know what that means? It's when you say mean things about someone else to your friends. It's when you go to your friend Jimmy or Susie and say, did you hear what he did? Did you hear what she said? Did you hear what happened? Can you believe it? That's gossip. Gossip is a lot easier than bearing false witness. We don't have to pick up stones and throw them to follow through. And so we can let our words fly fast and furious. We don't have to take personal responsibility for them 
and we don't have to see firsthand their effects. In the Old Testament, God laid out this command to protect the truth among his covenant people. In a world full of lying, he wanted his special nation to be a nation of truth-telling. In the world today, the same goes for the church. The church ought to be a safe place in a world full of lies. How could it be otherwise? The devil is the father of lies from the beginning. And our God is a God of truth. So surely his people ought to be committed to the truth as well, speaking the truth in love, defending and promoting their neighbor's honor and reputation. Surely the church ought to stand out in this world as a witness to the truth and to the destructive nature of the lie. Sadly, it's often not the case. In fact, it's often the opposite. Because of the tight-knit character of the church, because we know each other so well, the church can become a place where the lie flourishes, where gossip and slander go unchecked, where the neighbor's reputation isn't defended and promoted, but dragged through the mud. Not always maliciously, maybe even rarely maliciously, but often thoughtlessly or carelessly, yet with no less of an effect. The ninth commandment exposes our hearts painfully. It shines a light into the corners of our hearts and reveals all the dust and cobwebs that we've collected there. And it's time to clean house. That's the message of the Apostle Paul in our passage from Ephesians 4 this afternoon. His command to put away falsehood and speak the truth with our neighbor in verse 25 is essentially a command for us to keep the ninth commandment. But he doesn't just repeat the command. He begins with, therefore. And it's that word that gives us hope for change and hope for our hearts. Because with that word, he points us back to what he's just said about the Christian life. We are no longer to walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, verse 17. Why? The answer is in verse 20. Because that is not the way you learned Christ. That's Paul's answer to our troubled thoughts about the ninth commandment. Why should we become people of the truth? Because we have learned Christ. And how can we become people of the truth? We must learn Christ again, or we must learn him better. We have to go back to Christ. There are two things going on here. The first is this. In verse 21, Paul writes, The truth is in Jesus. By using the name Jesus rather than Christ, Paul wants us to think of Jesus, the man who walked on earth. He wants us to see in the life of Jesus how he lived out the truth fully and completely. He always spoke the truth in love. He never gossiped, never slandered. He always defended and promoted his neighbor's honor and reputation. Let me give just one example of what that looked like. 
You may recall the story in John's Gospel of Jesus' trip through Samaria. He met a Samaritan woman at a well in town and immediately engaged in a deep conversation with her. At a certain point, he said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband, which wasn't exactly the whole truth. How did Jesus respond? Did he accuse her of lying? Did he go to the disciples to share all the juicy details with them? Did he go and talk to the townspeople about this broken woman? No. He said, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus sees through her, but instead of condemning her, he speaks the truth to her in love. The one way we learn Christ and learn how to speak the truth in love to our neighbor is to study Jesus, to see his example, to walk in his footsteps, to be his disciples. The other aspect to what Paul is saying is this. You are in Christ and have been taught in Christ. There's something deeper here than just learning about Jesus or hearing about Jesus. If our solution to our failures is just to read through the Gospels and see how Jesus lived and then go and try to imitate him, we'll fail. We won't be any further ahead. No, the only thing that will change us, change us is being more and more united to Christ, becoming one with Christ, growing into Christ, as Paul puts it in verse 15. We need to embrace Christ as our Savior, our Redeemer, and also as our Renewer by His Spirit. But how does that happen? What does it mean to learn Christ? What does it mean to be taught in Christ according to the truth? Verses 22 to 24 give us the answer. You are to put off the old self and put on the new. Now we're talking. It's not just a head thing. It's not just a question of saying, yes, I believe, and then waiting for some mysterious change to happen. Of course, we understand that apart from the Spirit's work, nothing will change. But that doesn't stop us from getting to work. And that doesn't stop Paul from telling us to get to work. How do you learn Christ? How do you grow up in him? And how does this make your obedience to the ninth commandment possible? You get to work. You take off your dirty clothes and you put on a clean pair. Is that concrete enough? None of you are sitting here without clothes, so presumably you get the picture Paul is getting at here. It's an ongoing thing. It's a regular thing. Maybe you have set up a little swimming pool for young children this summer. It can be a lot of work. Clothes off, swimming trunks on, swimming trunks off, clothes back on again, clothes off again, swimming trunks back on. You get the picture. Being in Christ means you are constantly ridding yourself of the old flesh. 
It means that you are constantly taking off the filthy clothes of gossip and slander and putting on the clean white robes of speaking the truth in love, of promoting your neighbor's reputation, of defending your neighbor's honor. It means you make concrete steps every day. It means you make a concerted effort when the temptation comes to gossip or slander your neighbor to either walk away or better, to stand up for them. And it means that when you fall, you confess, you seek forgiveness, and then you try again. Each and every time you do that, you take off those dirty rags and you put on the clean white robes of Christ. And the more you do it consciously and through the power of the Spirit, the less you'll find yourself in filthy rags and the more you'll find yourself in clean white robes. That's what Paul means also by the renewing in the spirit of our minds. Here again, the emphasis is on newness. Being in Christ, learning Christ, ought to be something that transforms us, makes us new. We are a new creation. Now we ought to be that new creation. When we make this putting off and putting on a habit, we retrain our minds. We renew our minds. We turn them from hatred towards our neighbor, our default position outside of Christ, to love for our neighbor. But what if you're on the receiving end of gossip or slander? Perhaps you've been a victim. How do you deal with that? This commandment points to another reality as well, a reality that brings great comfort. It's this, because you are in Christ and because he is the truth, the lie can ultimately do nothing to you. If you have been hurt by lies or accusations or gossip or slander, know that Christ also bore the weight of those hurts and those pains. He bore countless insults, was mocked, was rejected by those closest to him. When it came time for him to give his life as a sacrifice, it was through false witnesses who breathed out lies against him. He bore our shame, our embarrassment, our emotional hurts, our emotional bruises. But he does more than bear our sorrows. He walks with us. He is our greatest friend, our fully reliable elder brother. He is there when others hurt us. He is there when others mock us. He is there when others gossip or slander. And though he alone really knows the truth, knows our innermost thoughts, knows our weaknesses, our shame, he doesn't condemn us or join in condemning us. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Romans 8, 33 to 35. If Christ will not condemn, if Christ will not accuse, you are safe. 
Who you are in Christ makes you secure from all gossip, slander, condemnation, false accusation, lying. Nothing people around you level at you can affect who you are in Christ. Your identity is secure. Who are you? You are a child of God. You are adopted by the Heavenly Father. You are a fellow heir with Christ. You are cleansed by the blood of Christ. You are holy. You are a saint. You are a lamb in God's flock. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are a new creation. You are a citizen of heaven. You are a royal priest. You are accepted. You are chosen. You are complete in Christ. You are precious in God's sight. I can go on if you want. That's who you are. That's the glorious truth. That's who God declares you to be in Christ. And nothing can change that. No one's false witness, no one's opinion, no one's words, no one's texts, no one's social media posts, no one's thoughts can alter a single detail about who you are in Christ Jesus. You are secure. But that also means that you need to recognize this truth about others, too. Paul writes that the reason we must put off falsehood and put on truth is because we are members of one another. Don't forget, this chapter of Ephesians began with these foundational truths. There is one body and one spirit. And Paul went on to say that we are to be busy building up the body of Christ, verse 12. And that, in verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. That means we all have a new identity, individually and collectively. We all belong to the same body. We are all under the same head, Jesus Christ. So why should you speak the truth in love? Why should you stop gossiping and slandering? Why should you start defending and promoting your neighbor? Because you are all members of one body. Because you are all in Christ. We need to see each other as we are in Christ. We need to recognize each other as members of the same body. We belong to the same body. That means gossip and slander in the church are like autoimmune diseases. They turn the body against itself. Instead, there ought to be harmony and love and unity in the body of Christ. That's how we live out the truth of the ninth commandment not just by avoiding false witness, but by building each other up. And the way we start is by seeing each other with the eyes of Christ, by seeing each other as those who are in Christ. Just now I encouraged you to focus on who you are in Christ. Well, if you want to live out that identity in the body of Christ, you'll have to see others in the same way. Take a moment to look around you in church this afternoon. Look down the pew. Look in front of you 
turn around and look behind you. Oh, we're not really good at that in church, right? You are all members of one body. You all have one head, Jesus Christ. You are united by one spirit, the spirit of Jesus. The person beside you in the pew and behind you and three pews over is also a child of God, is also chosen, is holy, is redeemed, is precious. Together, we are the body of Christ. Together, we are the hands and feet of Christ. Together, we are the temple of our God. Amen. Let us respond to the gospel with the singing of hymn 49.